Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. My name's Damien Walsh, I'm the chairman of the Britain Australia Society and uh, welcome to Australia House uh, for the next episode in the first eight lecture series. Uh, many of you were here last year to hear, to hear David, hear Dr David Hedden present the George Reid lecture which was downstairs in the, uh, in the main hall uh, and of course uh, fabulous to have you again here tonight, thank you very much. Um, I was very fortunate to have a preview over lunch with David yesterday um, and I can assure you we're in for a treat. Uh, as you know, these types of events uh, only, are only possible with the generous support of our partners, including the Australian National University, Commonwealth Bank, of course, uh, who are our, our, our primary uh, sponsor of the Britain Australia Society, the Trade and Investment uh, Queensland, and, of course, the Australian High Commission here in London. Ladies and gentlemen, it's now my pleasure to introduce our very generous host, uh, the Australian High Commissioner, His Excellency George Brandis QC, to get proceedings underway. Thank you, George. Well, thank you very much indeed, Damien. And can I begin by saying how delighted I am to see so many people here tonight. Um, it's uh, absolutely thrilling that uh, so many of you have been good enough to come on such a, an important night um, to uh, hear about uh, an important early Australian political figure. Uh, can I, of course, acknowledge uh, Damien Walsh, the Chairman of the Britain Australia Society? Can I acknowledge the uh, Deputy High Commissioner, Matt Anderson? Um, we're joined tonight by two of my illustrious predecessors in this office, John Douth and Alexander Downer. And, of course, our special guest, Dr David Heaton, from whom we'll hear tonight about the life and work of one of Australia's most significant early Prime Ministers, Andrew Fisher. The first eight project was launched in 2018 as a joint undertaking between the Australian Parliamentary Library, the National Mu Museum of Australia, the National Archives of Australia, the Victorian Parliamentary Library and the Australian National University's Australian Studies Institute. The project incorporates a series of events, lectures, exhibitions and a monograph series on the first eight Prime Ministers of Australia. It's an important and worthwhile project, which I trust will go a long way in enlivening an interest in the formative, and I'm bound to say, somewhat neglected period of our nation's history. The scholar tasked with the not insubstantial task of writing the biographies of the first eight Prime Ministers and delivering this series of lectures is a Foundation Fellow at the Australian Studies Institute. Dr Heaton is, an, is, as you would expect, an accomplished historian. He was formerly Director of the Centre for Australian Cultural Studies, a parliamentary advisor, and is the author of numer numerous works on Australian history. Today, he is a regular commentator on cultural 
political and social issues. It's a great pleasure to welcome David Heaton back to Australia House because it was just over a year ago, as many people in this room tonight will remember, that he delivered the first lecture in this series, a tremendous lecture on the first High Commissioner of Australia to the United Kingdom, and the fourth Prime Minister, Sir George Reid. Tonight, we're to hear from Dr Heaton on the fifth Prime Minister of Australia, Andrew Fisher. Andrew Fisher was also the second Labor Prime Minister after John Christian Watson. However, unlike Watson, whose administration lasted less than four months and made no significant impact, apart from winning for Watson the bragging rights of being the first Labor Prime Minister in the empire, <laughs> Fisher was Prime Minister three times and led the first majority Labor government. Having formed a minority government in 1908, he went on to win the 1910 election in his own right, the first occasion on, upon which the Labor Party had won an election in its own right, and served a full term until the 1913 election, which he narrowly lost, but he was elected again at the first double dissolution election of 1914. He shares with Alfred Deakin the distinction of being one of only two people to have served in the office of Prime Minister three times. Fisher's governments had many achievements to their credits, about which we'll hear from Dr Heaton, taking advantage in particular in his long second term from 1910 to 1913 of a time of peace and relative stability between the fusion of the non-Labor parties in 1909 and the Labor split under Fisher's successor, William Morris Hughes, in 1916. It was Fisher who led Australia into the Great War and who served at the time of the Gallipoli campaign. However, as 1915 wore on, the stress of war as well as internal party turmoils began to affect his health and he retired in October of that year. He was, by any measure, measure, a very significant early Prime Minister, as we will hear from Dr Heaton's lecture. He was certainly the most important Labor Prime Minister until John Curtin, another great wartime leader. Let me say a couple of words about Andrew Fisher's relationship with Australia House. It was Fisher's government which made the decision to build this building, the first significant public building of the new Commonwealth. He was, in that sense, the father of Australia House. When he came to London to attend the Imperial Conference in 1911, Fisher inspected this site, recently cleared by the London City Council. He returned to Australia with a recommendation to his cabinet that the site be acquired as a permanent home for the Australian High Commission. The cost of the land was £364,000. The construction cost was estimated at a further £223,000. To put that into perspective, the National Accounts of Australia for 1910-11 tell us that the Consolidated Revenue Fund for that year 
stood at £17,248,329. So the project re represented some 3.4% of the Commonwealth's total liquidity. There were predictable objections by some about extravagance. <laughs> However, the project was approved by the House of Representatives in November of that year, significantly with the support of Fisher's chief political opponent, Alfred Deakin, whose government had been criticised for its slowness in acquiring a permanent site in London. Fisher also wrote to all the states, all of whom approved the proposal, with the sole exception of Queensland. <laughs> this is ironic, because Fisher was a Queenslander who lived in the gold mining town of Gympie and sat for the seat of Wide Bay. Fittingly, given his role in the creation of the building, upon his retirement in 1915, his appointment as Australia's second High Commissioner to the United Kingdom was announced. His term commenced the following January, and so it was he who oversaw the completion of the building, who presided over its official opening in August 1918, and was the first to occupy the High Commissioner's splendid office upstairs, or downstairs in fact, over the way. Little changed to this day. More than a century would pass, by the way, before another Queenslander would occupy it, although I do note that John Douth was born in Brisbane, but I do not think identifies, as people say these days, as a Queenslander. <laughs> Fisher served until 1921, when he retired in London, where, like his predecessor George Reid, he lived out the rest of his days. He died on the 22nd of October, 1928, 91 years ago to the day, and lies buried at South Hill Park Cemetery, where I very much hope that in nine years hence, a future High Commissioner will follow last year's precedent on the centennial of George Reid's death and host a memorial service. But for now, we have very much to look forward to in hearing from Dr Heaton about the remarkable contribution to Australian political life of Andrew Fisher. Dr. Hayden. I Commissioner George Brandis, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. Over the last couple of years, I've embarked on a series of reassessments of Australia's first eight Prime Ministers, a cohort whose terms of office, taken collectively, occupied the first 28 years of national government in the new Commonwealth after Federation in 1901. Working through the group in my own chosen order, I have so far explored the lives and political careers of our second Prime Minister, Alfred Deakin, and last year, the redoubtable George Reid, our fourth Prime Minister. While the debonair Victorian protectionist Deakin, the poster boy of Federation, has over the decades received more favourable scholarly attention than any other, any of the early Australian Prime Ministers. Reid, on the other hand, New South Wales free trader Reid, Federation's so-called yes-no Reid. Reid, on the other hand, was unfairly marginalised because of his fixed determination to assess Federation's primary source documents with a sophisticated critical eye. The Scotland-born Reid demanded and played the leading role in obtaining a more democratic Australian constitution. And yet, today, he remains a largely 
forgotten figure, a hundred years since his death in London in September 1918. Andrew Fisher followed Reid to become Australia's fifth Prime Minister. He was destined to assume the reins of his adopted nation's top job no less than three times in the seven years between 1908 and the first year of the Great War. Also born in Scotland, Fisher had a powerful, empathetic vision for his fledgling nation, a vision that transcended politics. When Britain's first Labor Prime Minister, Ramsay MacDonald, two years younger than Fisher, spoke at the unveiling of an obelisk monument at Hampstead Cemetery in London in 1930 to properly acknowledge Fisher's death in 1928, he was close to tears as he remembered with affection the precious life, as he put it, of his old friend. Someone, he said, who was more than a Prime Minister. In my lecture this evening, I'd like to give my view of what Ramsay MacDonald may have had in mind when he used the words more than a Prime Minister. The illegitimate son of a Scottish farm labourer and a housemaid, few people were better placed than MacDonald to appreciate Fisher's special qualities as a leader and the preeminent role he played in acquainting the world with the idea of labour in power, labour in national government. Fisher, MacDonald knew, was a global trailblazer, someone who had strongly influenced the way he, MacDonald, had successfully advanced labour politics in Britain in the 1920s and into the 1930s. And yet, as was alluded to by the High Commissioner, um, despite this, Fisher's reputation, like that of George Reid, suffered a marked decline during most of the 90-odd years that have followed his death. For far too long, he was inexplicably dismissed as at best reliable and well-intentioned, at worst unintelligent and uneducated, a political plotter. Fortunately, not one, but two comprehensive biographies by Australian historians David Day and Peter Bastian, published at about the same time, some 10 years ago, they've done much to rectify an embarrassing scholarly oversight. Each of these detailed studies constructs a compelling case for Fisher's genuine significance, based on the breadth and sheer number of his political achievements. Tonight, I would like to take up the remarkable Fisher story in six blocks. Firstly, by advancing a few of the reasons why he was so underrated by the bulk of Australian historians for so long. Secondly, and in order to understand the importance of Fisher's childhood and teenage years in the making of a politician who mattered, I'll revisit the straightened circumstances of his formative years in Crosshouse, East Ayrshire, Scotland, not far west of Glasgow. He was a pit boy in one of the region's 12 coal mines as a nine-year-old at the beginning of the 1870s, eventually migrating to Australia with one of his brothers in June of 1885. It will become clear, I believe, that Andy Fisher gifts Australia our own log cabin to White House story. At the Hampstead funeral, Ramsay MacDonald marvelled at Fisher's ability to find his way, as he put it, from the very bottom to the very top. Thirdly, I'll touch lightly on the first 15 years following Fisher's arrival in Australia. Years for him mining coal and gold, ably leading his union branch, getting blacklisted 
and going on to spend some five years in the Queensland Colonial Parliament. These years provided the platform for Fisher's election to the seat of Wide Bay in the inaugural Commonwealth Parliament in 1901. Fourthly, I'll address the extraordinary 15 years that followed, from Federation in 1901 to the First World War, when Fisher mastered the nuances of the political trade and with confident voice went on as Prime Minister to articulate an original, national, egalitarian vision. His three governments from 1908 entrenched Australia's reputation as a progressive nation culturally and in the phrase used by interested observers at the time as the social laboratory of the world. This was a period when visiting social scientists from Great Britain, Europe and North America headed down under to look and learn. Fifth, I'll look at a small cluster of profoundly poignant years of pain and sorrow for Fisher, the Great War years, when he endured a gradual physical and mental decline. He was shocked by the unprecedented loss of young life. Gallipoli horrified him. By the end of the war, his hair was snow white, his optimism in tatters, his memory in trouble. Fisher's pacifist instincts had been violated. His we-free belief in a coming brotherhood of man all but extinguished. What he called the beloved land of his adoption, his new world home in the south, had been dragged into the centuries-long conflicts of the old world. Despite being the prime minister of a participant nation, Fisher felt numb and powerless. Finally, I'll summarise why Andrew Fisher must be accorded a permanent place in the list of Australia's most distinguished Prime Ministers. More than ever today, we need to shine a light on his courageous leadership, strength of character, unshakable belief in social reform through sound party policy and his enlightened social and cultural vision. It's not too difficult to locate the reasons why Australia's fifth Prime Minister, Andrew Fisher, was for the best part of 80-odd years after his death in 1928, as I said, damned with faint praise by a number of Australian historians and curiously ignored by others. Like virtually all our Federation fathers, Fisher too suffered from the blanket dismissal by unthinking later generations that the men who were the architects of the Federation and its constitution in photographs look like a bunch of bearded or mustachioed boring old farts. <laughs> Fisher had been caught up in this malaise of, uh, has been caught up in this malaise of community forgetfulness, again alluded to by the High Commissioner. But the vicissitudes of history, especially as they applied to the last years of Fisher's career, also worked against him. From the time he left Australia in late 1915 to become our second High Commissioner in London, Succeeding Reid, he was absent from Australia for almost all of the 13 years until his death and burial in London. Well, out of sight, out of mind. There are other reasons too. Fisher was never as charismatic as Alfred Deakin, George Reid or Billy Hughes. Deakin charmed his audience. Reid entertained and persuaded them. And Hughes catered to their worst instincts. Fisher, on the other hand, reasoned with them. He set out policy plans and worked behind the scenes to see them realised. He wasn't sexy. And when his Scottish burr, his broad Ayrshire accent, I wish I could do it, nowhere near, 
got the better of him during an excitable podium uh, moment, no one in the audience could understand him. (laughs) Making things worse for the Fisher legacy was the fact that in the nearly 60 years from Billy Hughes' controversial nationalist government in late 1916 all the way to Gough Whitlam in 1973, the beginning of 73, the Labor Party was in government for a mere 10 of them. In academic circles, historians of a conservative bent flourished in these decades and Fisher suffered accordingly. In the 1960s, for example, Laurie Fitzharding's scholarly two-volume biography of Hughes, the first of them published in 1962, and J.A. Lenoz's comprehensive 1964 biography of Alfred Deakin were persuasive publications at the time. Both are dismissive of Fisher. When these damaging biographical slices were occasionally questioned from the 1970s onwards, the majority opinion became a little more positive about Fisher, yet the underwhelming historical reception held on until the interventions of Day and Bastian. In this lecture, I want to validate the thrust of the recent reassessment. Andrew Fisher was born on the 29th of August 1862 the second of six sons and two daughters of Robert Fisher and Jane Garvan in Crosshouse, one of a number of towns spread across Scotland during the 19th century whose character, appearance and recent history were carved out by coal mining. Back through the generations, the Fisher family tree had included weavers, farm labourers and blacksmiths. Wishful family folklore even suggested a blood connection to renowned Scottish patriot William Wallace. What we know for sure is that the young Andy's grandfather, John, and his father, Robert Rabb, were coal miners. Both men worked hard and agitated in public to improve their lot and that of their fellow miners and families. Grandfather John, family storytelling has passed on with pride, was a chartist who participated in some of the campaigns of the 1830s that sought an extension of the suffrage and um, uh, parliamentary reform. John's son, Rab, like his father, was blacklisted. His radical principles, forged by oppressive circumstances uh, of his employment and his reading of reformist and protest literature, found some expression in the prominent role he played in the establishment of the cooperative, or the store, as the locals called it. In March 1863, only a few months after his son Andrew's birth, Robert and nine fellow miners established the Crosshouse store with a hard-earned £15 in start-up capital. It was a valuable initiative, a glimmer of symbolic light for the, for the miners in the darkness of pit work in the day and impossibly crowded home shelters at night. During Fisher's childhood in the late 1860s, his village had row upon row of company houses, butts and bends, as they were called, most of them with stone or earth floors, outside loos and crowded communal washhouses. Water for cooking and drinking was obtained from street pumps near the school, while water for washing was more distant, obtained in buckets attached to a shoulder harness. As Fisher's father struggled with illnesses induced by the coal, young Andy was down in the mines before he was ten and spitting out the black phlegm of the miner's cough before he was 20. Noting that Fisher used to occasionally, uh, to tell occasionally of the hardship of his early life, historian M. H. Ellis informs us 
that whenever he did so, it was always, in Alice's words, with great cheerfulness. Like all his siblings, Andy knew he could depend on a hard but scrupulously fair father and his warm, nurturing mother. Home life was a seminal influence on Fisher. But so too was the family's local free church of Scotland. The Fishers were wee frees in the parlance, moderate, temperate Presbyterians who believed in the possibility of and the need to work devoutly towards a human brotherhood based on the Sermon of the Mount uh, values of the New Testament. They were sincere Christians. Just like his parents, Andrew was a strict, lifelong teetotaler. He never swore or gambled. He attended church regularly. He believed in life after death. And according to his daughter Peggy, her father's everyday speech was full of biblical references. Indeed, in the early 1890s, shortly before his political career in colonial Queensland began, Fisher seriously considered the ministry as a career. In later life, Andrew Fisher's only real indulgence was the occasional puff on a cigar. We free values and ideals emphasised moral improvement and the duty of all individuals embracing their teachings to lend a hand to anyone in need. These fundamentals were steadily inculcated into Fisher in his formative years so that when the cooperative store put together a small library while Fisher was in his teens, he grabbed the opportunity to improve himself. Only able to attend school for a few years until starting work as a pit boy, went back to school ever so briefly, Fisher explored other educational uh, avenues. His father took a keen interest in the reading of his sons, ensuring that they all became familiar with a small number of essential individual authors who, in their writings, advocated the urgent need for social change. Robbie Burns' verse, of course, stood out, not only for the political, moral, aesthetic and profoundly Scottish qualities of his poetry, but also because it captured the essence of an age of dissent and social action. Fisher's favourite poem, and that of many a Scot, past and present, A Man's a Man for All That, had been inspired by Tom Paine's classic 1791-92 volume, The Rights of Man. Crosshouse readers of Burns claimed him as one of their own, since his first poetry volume was published in nearby Kilmarnock in 1786, just up the road. So when Andy walked the few kilometres to Kilmarnock to attend night school in his mid-teens in the late 1870s, he would have imbibed the heady, poetic ambrosia, the proximity of Robbie Burns. The effect of this brew lasted. In older age, he could still recite slabs of Burns by heart. There were other key authors for Fisher, in particular two Americans, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who I talked about briefly last year uh, in the Reed Lecture, the most internationally significant essay writer of the 19th century, and Henry George, whose venerated 1879 work, Progress and Poverty, for some years during the 1880s, outsold the Bible. The American Emerson, in essays such as Man the Reformer and Self-Reliance, introduced Fisher to an accessible working philosophy of self-improvement and the way it might enhance an individual's commitment to social, political and cultural reform. Fisher responded to the Emerson of the first 1841 volume of essays. I, I sort of divert from Peter Bastian on this one in terms of the important sections. Passages for me, such as this one in Man the Reformer, 
What is a man born for, wrote Emerson, but to be a reformer, a remaker of what man has made, a renouncer of lies, a restorer of truth and good. The final two sentences of the American self-reliance essay comprise a dictum which arguably guided Fisher throughout his life. Nothing, Emerson wrote, can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing can bring you peace but the triumph of principles. Henry George's impact on Fisher was of a different kind. George's progress and poverty exposed to the world the disastrous social impact of continuing global inequality. Many of his readers accorded him a Christ-like status, but not Fisher. Fisher needed to find answers to Henry George's questions. As a young man in Crosshouse who every day experienced societies rich and poor in conflict, the words of Henry George's dedication in Progress and Poverty were another eloquent clarion call to action. Henry George wanted his readers to be, as he put it, those individuals who, seeing vice and misery that spring from the unequal distribution of wealth and privilege, feel the possibility of a higher state and strive for its attainment. M.H. Ellis informs us that when Fisher, for the first time, walked into the Queensland Parliament in 1893, I don't know where he got it from, but I'm taking it at face value, as a new MP, Fisher put down his jute bag and it fell over, out toppled a world-thumb copy of Progress and Poverty. The young Fisher had arrived in Brisbane intent on turning theories about inequality into purposeful political action. A new life for him had begun. But what had led up to this seminal life moment? How had Fisher turned up in colonial Queensland and in the Parliament? To answer these questions, we have to go back to the Fisher family's many animated kitchen table discussions, along with Andrew's deep commitment to social justice from his early teens. Aged only 17, he was elected secretary of the Crosshouse branch of the Ayrshire Miners Union in 1879. Two years later, he was part of a miner strike which had begun in Lanarkshire and spread to the Ayrshire mines. The miners held out for 10 weeks but could not survive the sustained pressure of income lost. The strike collapsed, the cause of trade unionism suffered a severe setback and Fisher was sacked and blacklisted. The Ayrshire Miners Association fell apart. Four years on, Having worn out his village's street corners advocating minor solidarity and being involved in an attempted reform of the Miners Association and then finding himself at the forefront of another strike, Fisher was again sacked and he was again blacklisted. One of the few bright uh, spots in a tumultuous period for him and the emergent international labour movement was that Fisher became acquainted with a young union activist just like himself. James Kerr Hardy. In the same year that Fisher was elected Secretary of his Union and Progress and Poverty was published, Kerr Hardy left his home in Lanarkshire and headed to Ayrshire, hoping to get financial support for his desperate miners back home, struggling in the midst of a four-month-long strike. Fisher and Hardy had much in common. They both rose from poor backgrounds, they both read studiously to improve themselves. They were both young men determined to play a part in the emergence of the labour movement. They both soaked up Burns' poetry and they were both destined to play preeminent roles in the founding and rapid development of their forthcoming 
Labor parties. Keir Hardy was Britain's first Labor MP in 1892. Fisher, as we will discover, would go on to establish a number of Labor government firsts, both in Australia and internationally. As their stars rose, Fisher and Hardy stayed friends, comrades with like-minded political goals. But in Ayrshire in the early 1880s, they had a real fight on their hands. The only difference between the two was that Keir Hardy carried on the struggle in Britain. Andrew Fisher, after years of debilitating struggle, repeated blacklistings through what Keir Hardy called a system of terrorism, and the near impossibility of finding any work, Fisher, after close consultation with all members of the family, was encouraged to try his luck in the colonies. The family knew that Queensland was booming. Its population set to double in the 1880s and the buoyant mining industry in the north and west of the colony meant that jobs were relatively easy to come by. The family would uh, also have been aware that Thomas McElwraith, the Queensland Premier, was an Ayrshire man made good. He and his brother, John, had become rich men. So when Andrew and his brother James bid their loved ones farewell at Kilmarnock train station, bound for London, there to link up with some 400-odd, I think 422 exactly, hopeful migrants, they headed for Australia, arriving in Brisbane in August 1885. Within a month, both were mining at the Burham Coalfield at Torben Lee, inland from Maryborough. In time, Andrew set his sights on the nearby, thriving town of Gympie, 130 kilometres to the south. Even today, tourist brochures boast that Gympie is the town that saved Queensland. In the mid-1860s, the infant Queensland colony was struggling when gold was discovered at a site located near what is now the Gympie Town Hall. A ragtag mining settlement transformed into a town and, in 1905, a city. The year that Fisher arrived in Gympie, 1888, the centenary year of British convict settlement, the town opened its own stock exchange. Coal dust residue, a staple of Fisher's past, was nowhere to be seen in go-ahead Gympie. Indeed, Fisher soon discovered that Gympie coal miners were a very different breed to the coal miners he'd known in Crosshouse and Burham. Gympie coal miners did not necessarily see their workplace in collectivist union terms. Often, they had personal profit in mind. The adjustment proved an easy one for Fisher for a few reasons. For one, cleaner quartz mining understandably had a much greater appeal, a much greater appeal to him. In his late 20s, he was beginning to think about his health as well as the possibility of marriage and a family. Gympie's size and its rapid development introduced Fisher for the first time in his life to a place with a range of social outlets and activities. Fisher was soon an active member of the Manchester Unity Independent Order of Odd Fellows, a temperance organisation that he remained in for his whole life. For a time, he took part in a local unit of the Colonial Defence Force. He joined a chess club, staying in it until national commitments overtook him. And importantly, he became the superintendent of the local Presbyterian Church Sunday School. For a short period during 1890, Fisher, as I mentioned earlier, seriously considered the church as a career. That change would have taken him to Ormond College at the University of Melbourne and into another life. It wasn't to be. He chose a different path. Fisher's religious beliefs and his labour union beliefs 
came into direct conflict when he led a Labour meeting on a Sunday, putting him at odds with the Presbyterian Church's Sabbatarian principle. He'd given his word that he would attend the industrial meeting and he was not prepared to break it. Fisher chose the Labour movement at the expense of the church. It was a momentous decision with lifelong implications. Across the colonies between 1890 and 1894, there was a succession of damaging strikes. The worst of them, the long-running maritime and shearer strikes. Things turned ugly in rural Queensland when the shearers and pastoralists infamously faced off at the town of Barcaldum. The government sent police and armed troops to the town to maintain law and order. Thirteen union leaders were arrested along with some 200 union shearers on charges including conspiracy, intimidation and riot. All were prosecuted. Andrew Fisher, by now a union official, identified closely with the Buckcaldon 13. His disgust when the Queensland Parliament voted to formally thank the police, the soldiers and officials who instigated the confrontation was matched only by his admiration for those who resisted them. For the rest of his life, Fisher kept as a treasured personal possession a photo he was given of the Barcaldon men upon their release from jail. The photograph's heading reads, Freedom Without Dishonour. The industrial clashes of the early 1890s ended in a series of crushing defeats for the forces of labour. Union achievements in the previous decade, the 1880s, sank invisibly into the past. Fisher found himself dismissed and blacklisted yet again. Lessons had to be learned. Principle among these was that lasting industrial and social change could only occur through participation in the political process. Fisher made up his mind that the ballot was the thing. He put himself forward in the 1893 Queensland election and won comfortably. Gympie sent two members to the parliament and Fisher, elected with an absolute majority, was one of them. A contemporary observer sketched a first-hand portrait for us. Fisher was a smart, athletic-looking and not unhandsome backbencher. He was quite proud of himself when he first arrived in parliament. Once uh, one could see that in his walk, uh, uh, that he had a charming self-confidence. It was already obvious in his pre-election statements that Fisher would align himself with the left reform side of the chamber, though it was equally clear that he had no interest in class warfare and no interest whatsoever in the utopian ideas of William Lane, the radical editor of the Queensland uh, Boomerang newspaper who led 200 wide-eyed Australians, including a poet named Mary Gilmore, to Paraguay in 1893 to see if communal living based on socialist principles could work. It did not. Fisher's labour feet were firmly grounded in Australia. His maiden parliamentary speech as a member of what became known as the Parliamentary Labour Party was openly pro-Federation, unlike the majority of his union labour and PLP colleagues. And he put himself forward as an MP who, to use, who was, to use his words, democratic and probably republican in principle. The generally conservative media in Brisbane as well as the Gympie Times newspaper in Fisher's own backyard maintained a relentless at attack on all Labor parliamentarians as socialists, communists or worse, revolutionaries. Surely, the Times mused, they and their kind would never be permitted to govern. In his first speech, Fisher ridiculed such insane writings. 
He had uh, entered politics, he said, to fight for more equitable legislation, essentially a fair go for societies underprivileged. And he entered the Queensland Parliament, his words, to learn a great deal and to stand firm for certain principles. During the three years of his first parliamentary stint, Fisher determined to act on his we-free principles. He spoke in the parliament over 500 times, more than any of his fellow MPs other than the Premier himself. His range of, inter range of interests and concerns was impressively wide, from ideas on a state-owned bank, state-owned railways, a graduated income tax, and a new land ownership, a new land ownership laws based on the writings of the American Henry George, from those to issues about which he was expert through bitter coalface experience, quite literally, namely workplace safety and workers' compensation. Fisher made an enormous impression, but he still had to present himself for re-election in Gympie, one of the most populous electorates in Queensland, with some 3,000 electors. The Gympie Times newspaper, as rabidly anti-Labor as ever, worked tirelessly to unseat him and in the end did so. It was 1896. What Fisher did was to start his own newspaper. He was returned, I wish I could talk about that, but I can't. He was returned to the Queensland Parliament in the next election, the 1899 election. Only a few months after that, things began to happen with speed. To the surprise of political pundits across the colonies, Fisher took his place in the colonial Labor Party government in Queensland, the world's first Labor government. It survived for a historic single week in December. Andrew Fisher was Queensland's Minister for Railways and Public Works. And he accessed documents that he used later in that, in that slim seven days. That's another story. When the minority government fell, there were howls of vitriol from the conservative Australian press, all disgusted with this momentary insult to their born-to-rule assumptions. It was the worker newspaper which best summed things up and with considerable prescience. Let Labor stand alone, the worker coolly observed. Time and tide are with it. It can afford to wait until its great opportunity comes. No words could more perfectly capture the mindset of Andrew Fisher as he and his Labor colleagues boldly strode into the new century. He was certain his party's time would come. At the first federal election for the gimpy seat of Wide Bay, Fisher garnered 55% of the vote. In all, he won the seat five consecutive times, each election by an increased majority. Not too shabby for a purportedly uneducated plodder. The Federation Year 1901 was for Fisher truly one to remember. He was elected to the Commonwealth Parliament in March. He took his place in the newly formed Federal Parliamentary Labor Party in May, when only he and New South Wales' Chris Watson were nominated for the leadership. And on the last day of the year, 31 December, the Scottish festival of Hogmanay, he married his gimpy landlord's daughter, Margaret Jane Irvine a charming young woman, a suffragist and feminist, whose father, also a minor, had died about a decade before. Andrew was 39 and Margaret was 27. In scenes that must have taken Fisher back to the daily privations of his crosshouse years, one of Margaret's sisters brought water from the nearby mine to cook the chicken for the wedding breakfast, and her youngest sister, aged 11, accompanied the newlyweds 
during the early days of their honeymoon because the family felt that she deserved a wee holiday. <laughs> the couple accepted the fact that in the following decades, as many as four members of the Irvine family, mum and as many as three other sisters, lived for long periods with them in Australia and here in London. Somehow it worked because the Fishers added six children of their own. While father and mother evidently never kissed or even held hands in front of their children, the National Library has a tender note that Fisher sent to his life partner after many years of marriage. It reads simply, To you I owe everything. You have made me very happy. Fisher's home life was settled, peaceful, chock full of, of and radically different to Deacon, but I'll get to that in a moment. He was amply fortified for a tempestuous first decade of Federation politics, better equipped than most of his parliamentary colleagues to withstand the volatility that lay ahead and to take his crucial part in the historic moments that were about to unfold. The governments of Alfred Deakin in the first instance set down what journalist Paul Kelly in his 1991 book, The End of Certainty, praises as the Australian settlement, talked about a year ago. Deakin's social and, and political pact with the, with the people of the new nation that endured. As this was occurring, Andrew Fisher relished his minor character's role off to the side of the national stage. He carefully analysed the contending forces at work in the parliament, protectionists and free traders, and he kept a close watch on, skill, on Deakin's skilful orchestration of Labour Party support in, the minority, in, in Deakin's minority government. Fisher and Labor bided their time, awaiting a great opportunity. In the first Federation parliaments, Fisher created a big impression on his uh, party colleagues from all states for a number of reasons. Many remembered his courage as a Queensland parliamentarian in 1899 when he opposed colonial support of Britain's conduct of the Boer War. Jingoism, what Fisher called the damaging war spirit, had engulfed his colony. He refused to be intimidating, declared that there was not a tittle of evidence to support British colonial secretary Joseph Chamberlain's account of the conflict or that of the Queen's ministers. For Fisher, Queen Victoria had, his words, often been badly advised by her ministers. And the same was true in this instance. Fisher repudiated the overwhelming Australian media portrayal of those opposed to the war as being disloyal to the empire. The colonies, he said, needed clear-headedness clear on, again his words, a question of urgent public importance. It came as no surprise to any Labor MP that when, when Queensland's Fisher took his place on the Labor benches of the Commonwealth Parliament, his measured contributions were conspicuous for the consistency, reason, sincerity and singularity of purpose. Manning Clark sem somehow concludes in volume five of the history that Fisher was thus the quintessence of bourgeois righteousness. And M.H. Ellis portrays him as, quote, a good sorter out and groomer of other people's ideas. I'd love to talk about that more, but I can't. Both claims draw heavily on, the respective, on their respective authors' clear biases and both ignore the more subtle qualities that some makers of history have, qualities that express their point of difference. The electorate can find this appealing. Throughout his political career, Fisher was motivated by several priorities that had widespread appeal. 
Because of his past, he never lost his belief in worker or party solidarity. He opposed and called out impropriety and skullduggery wherever he found it. He rejected the idea of a privileged class, a class born to rule. At ease with democracy, he was, he put it in 1910, prepared to trust the people as his talisman. And he could not be bribed, not by the big end of town or indeed the little men or women who dropped off gifts to the family home. These were always returned to sender. The fledgling Federal Parliamentary Labor Party knew what it had in the man from country Queensland. In 1904, when Chris Watson led the world's first national Labor government for four months, ex-Minor Fisher was appointed to Cabinet as the Minister for Trade and Customs, joining colleagues such as umbrella maker Billy Hughes, farm worker Gregor McGregor and engine fitter Edgerton Batchelor. In August 1905, Fisher defeated the far more extroverted, nakedly ambitious Billy Hughes for the deputy leadership, despite the widespread perception of Hughes as the party's most formidable performer on the floor of the House. In October 1907, after Watson's resignation as ALP leader, the party once again voted for Fisher, one-on-one -on -one against Hughes, this time for the party leadership. And in November 1907, it certainly did Fisher's political aspirations no harm when the celebrated James Kerr Hardy, after arriving in Australia to recover from ill health, handwrote a message on a postcard, of, uh, postcard photo of himself and Fisher, an item shortly afterwards mass-produced as a Labor Party fundraiser. The postcard read, Fraternal greetings from the workers in the old homeland to their comrades in the new. The aim of our worldwide movement is the same, the economic emancipation of Earth's toiling millions. So when Fisher, settling into the party leadership, delivered one of his most important speeches ever to Labor's federal conference on the 7th of July 1908 at the Trades Hall Brisbane, he used the occasion to reinforce key messages to his audience and to the country. The women in the room, he said, were important. He did not want, want one more election to take place without Labor endorsing a female Senate candidate. And then in some of his most often quoted words, he went on to state that we are all socialists now, immediately qualifying the remarks by reiterating his own less extreme socialism. He was after just remuneration for all workers. He was after universal suffrage and progress towards what he called an educated democracy. The decision was taken at this historic Fourth Labor Conference that the time had finally come to go it alone. Labor had spent a few educational years as the junior member of Deakin's Protectionist Labor Alliance, but by the middle of 1908, the loose agreement was disintegrating. According to historian Gordon Greenwood, Deakin had, quote, largely exhausted his legislative initiative and had outlived his usefulness, end quote. Labor withdrew its support and after three years and four months in power, Deakin's minority government collapsed. On the 13th of November 1908, Fisher's, Andrew Fisher's standalone Labor Party was asked to form a government. It was the catalyst for worldwide celebration and Fisher was cabled notes of congratulations by, amongst others, Keir Hardy and Ramsay MacDonald, 
in Britain. For Fisher himself, it was a progress point in his political journey that had been decades in the making, or perhaps in the discovery. His private secretary, Malcolm Shepard, left us an unpublished manuscript of the National Library. In it, he captures Fisher's reaction. Quote, Mr Fisher took his triumph quietly enough, but it was the quiet of exaltation. Fisher's first prime ministership only lasted about six and a half months, 1908-1909, but it was a period during which, despite another um, uh, being another minority government that lacked the numbers, it did manage to pass some progressive legislation following on from Deakin. Of most importance, it showed the nation what a functioning Labor government could offer, stable, efficient, responsible national government. This was obvious to all when the new Prime Minister, at the top of his game, delivered a remarkable speech on the 30th of March 1909 in his hometown of Gympie, a speech that excited his political colleagues and made a deep impression on the nation. Fisher put Labor's agenda openly to the people. There was no verbal jugglery, no sleight of hand, just plain speaking that outlined a more radical, fairer, more visionary agenda than anything Alfred Deakin could contemplate, much less introduce. Key long-standing Fisher items were there. Land taxation and more money spent on social welfare initiatives. But there was also a bunch of big nation-building infrastructure projects brought to the boil, such as a transcontinental railway, determination to finally establish a national capital. Boy, that's a story. I talked about it for years in Canberra. The nationalisation of the steel industry, an Australian currency, and as global tensions increased, strategic defence planning. Controversial Labor MP W.G. Spence was thrilled by the implications of Fisher's statesmanlike speech in Gympie. It was, he later wrote, the boldest and most national Australian policy ever enunciated. Anti-Labor, wrote Spence, was struck dumb and failed to find a flaw in it. The net result of this was that Deakin, having so disliked George Reid that he could never consider an anti-Labor coalition in earlier years, I talked about that last year, Deakin found himself directed into the so-called fusion alliance of all those political groupings opposed to Labor. What a disparate, conflicted church the ill-fated fusion was. Deakin, uh, Deakin privately admitted that he had made a pact with, as he put it, every enemy I have ever had since Federation. The fusion forces, however, did have the numbers to terminate Fisher's first government at the start of June 1909, in effect commencing the two-party system of government that we have in Australian politics today. Labor was appalled by what it saw as Deakin's born-to-rule arrogance. That too is a story I can't go into. The Deakin government carried on for a while until the federal election in April of 1910. Deakin apparently felt that he'd done enough to win, was fairly confident. Fisher had been on the hustings for months, never more impressively than in his typically quiet, patient, reason, reason speech in the heartland town of Maryborough on the 9th of February 1910, where what he termed his triers, sounds familiar, his working class and blue-collar supporters were being offered sound Australian tweed in stark contrast to what he called the spangled finery of the circus ring of Deakin's fusionists. Fisher won the election, the Fisher government, in a landslide. Labor garnered 43 of 75 House seats and all 18 Senate positions up for grabs, giving it 23 of 36 senators in the chamber. This was the Labor Party's 
and Fisher's true coming of age. Federation's first majority government was about to totally transform the Australian political landscape. During the next unfettered three years and two months, the Fisher government introduced 113 acts into the Australian Parliament. Biographer DJ Murphy calls this, quote, an exhilarating wave of public policy inception, innovation and embellishment, seismic in its impact. Consider that in a high-octane full, uh, full term, the government introduced the first Australian currency, it established the Commonwealth Bank, it commenced the building of the Transnational Railway, it introduced a land tax, a maternity allowance, workers' compensation for federal public service and improved invalid and old age pensions. It turned the first sod, named and laid the foundation stones for the National Capital in Canberra. It strengthened the contested Conciliation and Arbitration Act and it took the first tangible steps towards establishing an Australian Navy and a citizen force for home defence through a system of compulsory military training. The raft of specific social reforms introduced by the second Fisher Ministry is all the more astonishing when contrasted with Britain, where most of the Australian benefits of 1910 to 1913 were not available until the health service was introduced in 1948. Little wonder that a host of foreign visitors travel to Australia at this time because of its glowing reputation as the social laboratory of the world to learn from a unique set of progressive policies. During 1911, the always quotable Keir Hardy acknowledged his friend Fisher as someone, as Keir Hardy put it, who more than any other public man represents the force that is coming, the rule of the common people. Ironically, it was the Scottish-born Fisher who understood the cultural implications of the Australian national project in a more thoughtful, creative way than the native-born, as it were, as it was called then, Alfred Deacon. Fisher knew that there was more to it than holding onto the tales of empire, or for that matter, addressing only the structures and delivery of a Commonwealth government. Symbolism counted, which is why Fisher took such a keen personal interest in the symbols of nationhood. He Australianised the coat of arms, from a slightly embarrassing, culturally awkward College of Arms creation to the one we have today. Intoxicated by the enormous variety of his adopted country's stunning array of acacia trees, he made the wattle our national flower. He had his government purchase the famed Petherick collection for the National Library, recognising its invaluable resources for, future, for the future scholars of the nation. He put the kangaroo on Australian stamps at the expense of a routinely boring monarchic head. He supported the use of national colours for the uniforms of Australia's Olympic representatives in 1912 and he established the Historic Memorials Committee and the Arts Advisory Board. Fisher wanted the national conscious of Australia, uh, consciousness of Australians to evolve into something more sophisticated and, in the best sense, patriotic. That driving force, together with, with an unbroken link to his Scottish past and ancestry, meant that he always rejected posturing pretension and any hint of social distinction. He was always Andy to those around him, even as Prime Minister, and he would not ride in any conveyance pulled or peddled by anyone, anywhere. On several occasions, he refused a knighthood. He refused the French Legion d'honneur, and when he succumbed to intense pressure from Australian and British authorities to accept an invitation to be a privy councillor, the first thing on the obelisk at uh, Hampstead, 
He begged off attending the formal swearing-in ceremony in London in 1911 to host a sports day in his home village of Crosshouse. Private Secretary Malcolm Shepherd noted Fisher's dislike, and it <laughs> exasperated him, dislike of what Shepherd called, getting it from, uh, from, Deca, uh, from uh, Fisher, the frills and fopperies of dress. The year 1912 was arguably the high point of Fisher's years as Prime Minister. Labor's annual conference that year was a celebration of success and sound policy. At a speech at Yass in June, Fisher proclaimed that the whole face of Australian thought is changing. The Labor Party has made Australia a nation, not only in name, but in fact also. When he, Fisher, began campaigning for the 1913 national election and buoyed by his government's record, Fisher was finally prepared to boast about achievements on behalf of his government. As he's put it, we have made good almost up to the very limit of our powers to have given the people of the Commonwealth a full harvest of national, social, individual and humane legislation. Australia today, he said, is enjoying a measure of prosperity hitherto unknown in her history. In hindsight, this one long exclamatory sentence assumes a grim irony. With the chapters of slaughterhouse global history over the next five years about to be written. The year 1913 for the world, for Australia and for its Prime Minister was a last moment of expansive optimism about human potential and capability before the world changed forever. For Andrew Fisher from 1913 to 1919, the wild escalation of events at home and abroad was as unrelenting as it was destructive. His government lost the 1913 federal election by one seat, a result which chastened Fisher because he believed he'd brought the electorate along with him when asking for more Commonwealth powers to legislate towards a better, more equal society. He was then re-elected to, uh, to form his third government on, September 7, uh, sept on the 17th of September 1914 in the so-called wartime election, having confirmed in a landmark July 1914 speech that if war came, Australia would stand, oft-quoted, by the mother country to our last man and our last shilling. Throughout 1914 and 1915, Fisher carefully managed a party in government that, under the heightened pressures of war, had begun to crack at the seams. The left of the party suspicious of involvement in an empire conflict, the right, led by belligerent Billy Hughes, hell-bent on prosecuting the war. Fisher, while forever believing that, the war, that war was a crime against civilisation and against humanity, felt Australia had to participate. However, from the moment the first cannons roared, open communication with London virtually stopped. The lack of consultation by the Imperial Government ignored completely agreements Fisher felt had been made in 1911. After burying at Duntroon the Australian General William Throsby Fridges, a personal friend of Fisher's, after his death at Gallipoli on the 2nd of September 1915, the funeral on a cold and rainy day in Canberra, a scheduling mix-up meant that Parliament would have to reassemble in Melbourne the following week. To the Conservative opposition leader Joseph Cook, a former Labor man, Fisher had broken his word. Fisher was shattered, apologised, and as Norman of Yorance had puts it in his engaging volume, The Manner of Their Going, something in Fisher snapped. For one week, 
Fisher was literally uncontactable. But not before he said to a close friend, his Defence Minister George Pearce, as he walked out of the Parliament for the last time, they can all go to hell, George. I'm not going back to that house again. And he did not. Appointed with haste on the 26th of October 1915 to succeed George Reid as the second High Commissioner in London, Fisher and his family arrived in England in January 1916. Breaking ranks, within a fortnight of arriving, Fisher gave an interview to the Times where he said, and I quote, I have been Prime Minister, but all the time I have had no say whatsoever about imperial policy. No say whatsoever. Now that can't go on. There must be some change. The war years as High Commissioner were punishing for Fisher, not only because conflict on the Somme was getting worse every month, but also because of the pervasive presence of death and destruction in London itself. Nor could Fisher, by belief, personality and character, distance himself from what was happening to his beloved Labor Party in Australia after Hughes had succeeded him as Prime Minister. Fisher's, as he wrote, wholehearted wish was that friends of many fights for right may not be driven apart for the rest of their lives. They were. And distance did not cocoon Fisher from the unseemly spectacle. When Hughes divided the nation on sectarian and class grounds over two bitterly, ultimately, bitter, ultimately unsuccessful referenda to introduce conscription, he also drove a wedge through the Labor Party. The pressure to have conscription introduced in the build-up to both referenda was white-hot, and Hughes made sure that the public knew, the Australian public, that five former Prime Ministers, Barton, Deacon, Watson, the Labor man, Reid and Cook, had all signed a public statement in favour of conscription. All except Fisher. He would not. He could not. He would not go against, as he put it, dearly held principles. The wee free lad from Crosshouse remained irrevocably, irrevocably opposed. He cabled back to Hughes, am unable to sign, position or bids. Struggling to deal with the war's assault and his principles, the jingoistic war spirit and what he labelled as Hughes' post-Napoleonic prances, Fisher also had to deal with the awful emotional strain of bearing his and Margaret's seventh child, born when Margaret was 42, a daughter tragically stillborn in August 1916. The last war years were the worst of times. To conclude... In 1912, Andrew Fisher's finest year as Australian Prime Minister, he told a friend that he longed to chat about things that have been, are and may be, when man to man the world or shall brothers be. The Great War erased that we-free yearning. Fisher got through the war, but only barely. What he called the vile, invisible enemy, his deteriorating health, had begun to show up as mental confusion and memory loss, the probable onset of some form of dementia, which made most of the last decade of his life difficult for his loving family and friends. When he died, the funeral service was held in St Columbus Church in Pont Street, London, where George Reed's funeral service had been held a decade before. Fisher was buried at Hampstead Cemetery, close by the grave of his stillborn daughter. A formidable spirit was rested, a grand Scot and a great Australian. 
His daughter Peggy, talking at the National Library 50 years ago, said that, quote, as a young man, my father saw visions and dreamed dreams. Fortunately for his adopted country, he got to realise some of them. Andrew Fisher was more than a Prime Minister. His moral behaviour, his moral example, his unfussed ability to turn policy into concrete political action have lessons for today's generation of Australian politicians on both sides of the House and indeed for a growing number of politicians beyond Australian shores. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, my name's Ben Hinshaw. I'm from the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Um, thank you all for coming this evening to what was a fascinating walk through the life of Andrew Fisher, uh, former Prime Minister of Australia. Um, a special thank you, Dr. Hedden, for the, for the lecture, um, to Australia House for hosting this evening in, in such a remarkable building with a lot of history, um, to the British Australia Society for organising the reception, uh, alongside the Australian National University, the Australian High Commission, uh, the Trade Investment uh, and Trade Investment Queensland. Um, great support this evening. What was um, you know, a great piece of history um, for me, as, as everyone here I trust. Uh, I do sort of wonder what um, the former Prime Minister would make of today's political situation. Um, you look at what he achieved in, in three years in his majority government. Um, Australia's first currency, paper currency, uh, formed, formed the Royal Australian Navy, um, started the Trans-Australian Railway, uh, founded the capital in, in Canberra in Australia and established the, the state-owned Commonwealth Bank of Australia, which uh, went on to become the Reserve Bank of Australia. Um, compare that to what we've achieved in the last three years in this country and it is um, <laughs> a remarkable contrast, really. Um, CBA's link with the UK goes back over 100 years to this very building, I believe, where some of the nation's reserves were held, gold reserves were held um, for a number of years. Um, we're very proud to be uh, primary sponsors of the British Australia Society, keeping that link strong between Britain and Australia. <coughs> Again, many thanks to um, all of those involved in tonight's occasion. It was, it was fascinating. Um, we very much look forward to, to the next chapter if that's possible here in London. Um, it's been a great event, so thank you very much um, to everyone involved. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.